Welcome to the Perfume Room. My scent of the day today is one you hear me talk about all the time. It is Diptyque Orpheon. And you know that fabulous song, Just Throw It In The Bag? You know, it's like, just throw it in the bag. Don't worry, that's the only time you'll ever hear me try and sing that song on this podcast. But that is what Orpheon is for me. It is my throw it in the bag scent. I went to a wedding in Palm Springs this past weekend to celebrate the union of very close friends. And due to a last minute flight change, I had to pack my bag in 15 minutes in order to make the flight. And these are the moments when you truly need a throw it in the bag scent. A scent when not blessed with the luxury of time or detail to think about matching looks with perfumes. The scent that you can reach for and know you will always be content with your choice. For me, that's always Orpheum. It's versatile, good for all weather, always smells lovely, always makes me happy. And I will say, only because it was literally sitting right next to my travel size of Orpheon, so it was an easy add, I did pack a little rollerball of the scent Poppy from Brittle Oil, which I do think I've also talked about before. But it's a creamy, bright, tropical, yellow and white floral. Definitely a scent where if you used to wear Michael Kors, the perfume or the Marc Jacobs perfume, despite it not being a tuberose or gardenia scent, similar feel similar vibe. If you like that, you would like Poppy. Definitely felt very Palm Springs, and it was also a surprisingly great layering combo. Also, this happened to be a wedding where I did scent consults for the bride and the groom. So the bride wanted something that felt skin scent-esque and effortless, airy, flowy, ethereal, but in an elevated and sort of bridal oomph kind of way. Something that packed a bit more punch than any scents in her everyday rotation, which includes scents like Glossier U and Wood Sage and Sea Salt. Ultimately, she went with Ex Nihilo Lust in Paradise, which is a fresh floral, pink pepper, musky scent. And the groom wanted something sort of smooth and handsome that matched the vibe of like a white linen suit, a destination wedding, Palm Springs, and he went with Creed Silver Mountain Water. Needless to say, they both looked and smelled amazing. Anyway, my question to all of you is, what is your throw-it-in-the-bag scent? A scent that you pick in a bind that you don't have to think about and you know you'll be happy that you picked or packed it. Let's get to our guest today. What an absolute treat it was to chat with Liz Moores, the creator behind one of my favorite indie niche fragrance houses, Papillon Artisan Perfumery. If you are in September Smell Club, you're well acquainted with Dryad, which is a scent among many in her collection that we discussed today. Now, aside from a week-long course, Liz is a self-taught perfumer, and with award-winning fragrances with such depth, dimension, and character, it's inspiring to chat with someone whose deep passion led them to unlock, learn, and cultivate such brilliance all on her own accord, pun intended. Anyway, we chat about everything from synthetics to memorizing materials to where she gets inspiration to critical and hilarious responses and reviews of some of her more polarizing scents and so much more. It was such a fun conversation. Here is Liz. Liz, welcome to the Perfume Room. I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. How are you doing? I'm really well. Thank you for asking me, Emma. It's a privilege to be here. I love your podcasts. I love your perfume. So this is really <laughs> just a delight on, on all, all ends. Okay, so the first question that I ask every guest is, what are you currently wearing today? 
Okay, today I'm wearing Chanel number no. five of Premier today. So Ooh, I don't know I'm, that flanker. Ah, it's nice. I prefer it to the original, um, which a lot of people would probably say I'm an absolute heathen for saying that. <laughs> but no, I, I love it. It's much fresher, much brighter, not so many aldehydes going on. So it's a nice one. It's a nice, I find it quite calming. Hmm, that's lovely. Do you feel that since you've become a perfumer and started your own brand, that it's taken any of the pleasure away from being a collector or aware of other fragrances? Or is that still a major part of your fragrance consumption and habits? It, it is. I mean, the, I love fragrance, um, but I think it's easy to become, I don't know, a little bit jaded um, with some of the new releases. Um, there's so much out there that I haven't smell so you know mm -hmm. I'm certainly not an expert um but yeah there are the odd fragrance that I get my nose on and I can instantly say I know how that was done and then the magic is gone I'm you've lost me at that point whereas mm -hmm. it's the fragrances where I smell them and think how did you do that that is incredible those are the fragrances that I tend to spend more time with is Eau Premiere a magical fragrance for you in that respect um, I remember buying it years ago. Oh, goodness me, it's got to be 15 years ago now, maybe longer. Um, and I think it was brought out just as a, a sort of a flanker that was only going to be available for a limited period of time. And I had some really good associations with that fragrance. Um, and because I did, when it, you know, you suddenly couldn't get hold of this fragrance anymore, I was quite disappointed. I, I hate it when it's limited production or limited run or an exclusive for, for a year and then it's gone. So when I discovered by chance that it was available again, I thought I, I need this fragrance. And I, I think I wear it just because it reminds me of a really nice time in my life when I first was wearing it. That's lovely. Yeah. I mean, that's really, that's like the kryptonite of flankers of like knowing that if you don't get it, then there might never be a chance. So I, I understand. It's so frustrating. <laughs> it is frustrating. And my next question, I think that's a good segue is, do you feel that there's any sort of like scent profile or signature scent that you tend to gravitate towards? I would certainly say the vintage style of fragrance. Um, but obviously I think that's just because it's, um, in my DNA. So the fragrances that I was growing up with are now classed as vintage. That makes me really right. old. Um, so, so I think my style has very much um, been influenced by some of the great fragrances. I mean, if you go back sort of, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago, everyone was pretty much wearing the same thing. So, you know, when Obsession by Calvin Klein was released, um, I wore that, loads of people I knew wore that. Nobody cared that we were all wearing the same fragrance. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think it very much defined an era as well. Whereas now, I mean, there are so many perfumes out there. There's so much to choose from. So I think, yeah, my, my style and my taste in fragrance I think is is very much influenced by the fragrances I used to wear or people around me used to wear whether that's my mother my grandfather you know it all comes together and I think it very much shapes you in terms of your tastes 
Hmm. I love that. And I, I, I think it's so funny you're talking about this idea that these fragrances you grew up wearing are now considered vintage. Is there <laughs> a year that if you had to pinpoint it, you'd be like, this is vintage and this is not like at what point in 2023 would you consider something vintage okay well I, I have a bottle of vintage opium it was being sold on ebay as vintage opium made me feel really really old because it's mm-hmm. from 1985 i was 15 then in 1985 mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's now classed as a vintage fragrance um but yeah. i think in terms of fragrance um the 80s were phenomenal you know, for, mm-hmm. for really, really paving the way and exhausting everyone until the 90s came along and everyone said, just calm it, calm it down a little. We're all done. But yeah, I do love a big, a big fragrance. But yeah, so vintage, I think, you know, anything from the 80s is classed as a vintage fragrance, which is crazy because I, I was alive. then. <laughs> I mean, I'm in my early 30s and the fragrances that I wore people call vintage and I'm like we need to reassess how we are calling vintage fragrances like this was like 10 years ago I agree I think a lot of it as well is to do with reformulation of fragrances so I think that has become quite confused um Mm -hmm. because I mean I'm trying to think when opium was released in the 70s 1970s at some point Mm -hmm. um so could you call I don't know the original bottle from there true vintage I guess you can it's it's quite a number of years ago now but when you get into the 80s is it so much but but yeah I think it's more to do with reformulation so people are looking for older bottles right yeah I mean it's interesting you were talking about fragrances that your mother and your grandfather wore because I'm curious what were some of the fragrances vintage or not that sort of influenced some of the fragrances you've created Yeah, I would say initially it would have been my mother and my grandmother. Um, Their fragrances, again, which now would would really be true vintage, certainly in my grandmother's case. Um, She wore youth chew and she Mm -hmm. had youth chew in every single variant you can imagine. So the body dusting powder, the bath oil, the perfume, she had it all. Talk about in your DNA. I mean, probably in the bloodstream. <laughs> I know, I think it must have been. And oh my goodness, I loved, the, I still love the smell of that fragrance. I have a mm-hmm. vintage bottle of used shoe that I wear. And obviously I remember my grandmother when I wear it. But I think as a child, you know, being able to play with pretty bottles. So I think initially that was my interest with the pretty bottles. And then obviously you open the pretty bottles and it's like a genie coming forth, you know, with this beautiful fragrance. Um, with my mother, my mother wore Reve Gauche and she also wore Joy by Jean Patou. Um, so quite different fragrances, but but still quite big fragrances. Um, and I remember the Joy by Jean Patou the most because she had the black lacquered bottle with the little red stopper in the top. And I was not allowed to go anywhere near this bottle, <laughs> but as a child, <laughs> frequently did. So, yeah. So I think, um, like you know, subconsciously, I've had sort of big scents going on around me pretty much most of my life. My father wore um, Givenchy Gentleman, and that was the fragrance he pretty much wore um, for his whole life. Um, and I have a vintage bottle of that as well. So... 
so yeah I think it very much um yeah influenced me to have I don't know friends family around me that were wearing I don't know the classics of the time you know they're classics now um right but I think again we can really call those vintages because they actually are vintages and not from 1992 Yes, that's not vintage. <laughs> right, right. I, re- I remember 1992 very well, so. <laughs> okay, not vintage. It seems like you get so much inspiration um, and your love of perfume from people that you grew up around. Do you feel like you've passed this on to your children? I think so, yes. I mean, my my eldest daughter, she's now, she's 31 now. She, um, I remember, for example, when I made Anubis, um, Jasmine said to me, it just, it just smells like death, mummy. It's, it's awful. I mean, at the time, I think she was wearing very much the fruity, candy fragrances mm-hmm. of the time and probably very age appropriate for her. Um, mm-hmm. You know, she would have been, well, it was 10 years, 10 years ago, 15 years ago that I made Anubis. Um, mm-hmm. So she, she was, you know, still a teenager. Um, she wasn't really inspired by the fragrances I was creating, um, whereas she is now. Um, and I think probably being, I think age has a huge part to play in that. I think our tastes massively change as we get older um, and keep on evolving. I think if you have a curious mind, I think it's it's really natural to, to keep wanting to try different things, whether that's food or a different holiday destination, and certainly with perfume. And so now, you know, Jasmine will, well, she loves Anubis. Um, and so I think, yeah, they, I think they've very much been influenced by being around me when they were growing up with the collection of fragrances I had. Sometimes I wonder if they're slightly bored <laughs> fragrance because I'm forever shoving a smelling strip under their noses and asking for their opinions but but they like they like the free perfume emma they get a lot of free perfume (laughs) it's a perk it's a good perk yeah i think i saw in an interview that you did with somebody else that your daughter wanted to wear anubis as her wedding scent but then her husband was wearing it and that's how Hera came about right absolutely i mean that nearly caused a divorce before the wedding had even happened but yeah you're who's gonna wear anubis i mean you need a prenup for that I know. I know. Honestly, it was a nightmare. So, so Jack, uh, Jasmine's husband, he said, "No, I'm wearing Anubis." So, obviously, it fell to me to create a wedding scent. Um, there wasn't any of the other fragrances in the Papillon collection that Jazz particularly wanted to wear for her wedding, and it was the perfect opportunity for me to create something for her, and at the time, only for her. I I have mentioned this before, but her brief that she gave me was horrendous. What was in the brief and why was it horrendous? (laughs) It was horrendous. So so I said, well, darling, you know, I'm very, very happy to make you a perfume. It'd be a privilege to do it, but you do need to give me a brief. You do need to help me here a little bit. And she basically said, well... I like jasmine. Obviously, that's her her name as well. So mm-hmm. use use lots of jasmine, um, and I'll trust you with the rest of it. You you know what you're doing. So the pressure was really on because that's almost worse when someone is like, "I know you got this." You're like, 
I know, I know. And I, I thought, goodness me, this could all go horribly wrong. But I, I very much took it in a direction. I, I, I took a bit of a risk, actually, with Hera, because I wanted it to have a very slight vintage vibe to the fragrance. And I know that's a style that jazz struggles with a little. Um, uh, but, but I wanted it there because I wanted it to be classic. I want, you know, I saw her... You know, my daughter, you know, classic bride, though she did wear black, but because she was wearing black, very much influenced where I was taking the fragrance and it needed to be something that was going to stand up to the drama of the day. Mm. Um, but it was, even though she gave me a rubbish brief, um, I'm really proud of that fragrance and she loved it and um, and it obviously did end up being released because she did say, if you don't put it into the collection, mummy, I will never speak to you again. So I think she really, she really did want everyone else to smell the fragrance that she wore, which I thought was really wow. kind. <laughs> That's beautiful. I, I love that. Okay. Well, I realize we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because there is one question that I always ask at the beginning before we move on, which is, do you have any, and I know you've already mentioned a few, but do you have any fragrance hot takes or controversial opinions? Mm, okay. Well, I, I think, even though I think smelling strips are invaluable, especially when I'm in my studio, um, you know, I can't be applying things all over my skin. Um, and certainly not when I'm testing, you know, raw materials. Um, but I think that all fragrance should be tested on the skin even if you just test one and you live with it for 24 hours and go to sleep and wake up the next day. I think the way a fragrance performs on a smelling strip and on fabric and on skin are so completely different. So I think mm -hmm. it's, um, it's actually quite a hard judgment call. I think if you're in a shop or a boutique and you're smelling lots of fragrance on smelling strips and you're pretty overwhelmed anyway, by by every other scent that's surrounding you so yeah I, I get quite annoyed when people don't try fragrance on their skin so I would say always do that you. and yeah don't do too many blind buys either avoid those if you can I think your line in particular too is it has such a strong point of view that to blind buy it would be almost a dis like I, you have to try something that you're going to wear on your skin every day and, and test that out. I, I very much agree with you. Yeah, you're right. I think it's, um, it's almost as though people are afraid of it. I mean, fragrance does wash off. I mean, I know probably right. if you were to spray Salome on your wrist, it might take you 24 hours to get it off, but it will come off and you'll survive. <laughs> there we go. Well, we're going to get to Salome in a little bit. <laughs> But let's go back to the beginning. I want to know, I mean, I know you've talked about fragrances that your parents were wearing and fragrances you grew up with. Was there a moment in your life where you remember specifically becoming interested in fragrance? I think I've always been interested in smells. Um, so not fragrance per se, but certainly smells around me. I remember plucking the heads of my grandmother's marigolds and crushing them in my fingers and smelling my hands afterwards. So all, I suppose you could say nature smells or the, you know, the smell of the city. Smells have just always intrigued me. And so more, more that than fragrance, I would say. I've got a good sense of smell. So, I mean, I'm quite good at sniffing things out. You know, if the cat brings in a dead mouse and hides it somewhere, I'm smelling 
the rotting body before anyone else has. And everyone else is walking around saying, we can't smell anything, you're going mad. Um, so I think it, I, I've always been interested in scent, just the smell, whether it's the smell of other people, whether it's my environment, smelling something new for the first time. Um, I think you need to have that really, to have any interest in fragrance. Because mm -hmm. I think that's where we form our associations as well. So I think to try to attempt to work backwards, if you are evaluating a fragrance, but you have zero reference point for what you're attempting to describe. So I think um, growing up and probably my my interest in in smells in general probably would lead me to where I am now. I think. Um, right. But it was a, it was a really, um, I don't know, a, a sort of jagged path to get here in a way. So it wasn't something, you know, making perfume wasn't something that I grew up thinking, this is what I'm going to do. It was not that at all. What did you think you were going to do growing up? I wanted to be a ballet dancer. So my hmm. auntie was a professional ballet dancer. Um, I wanted to do that. Then I wanted to work with animals. Um, and I didn't do that and um, ended up working in a fairly corporate world um, and didn't really enjoy that either. Um, so I knew I wanted to do something creative. Um, I'm happiest when I'm creating something. And how did you decide on perfume and and what sort of were you were you in the sort of like niche perfume scene as a consumer before you decided to tackle the creator side of things? No, not at all. I mean, um, so Papillon was founded nearly, well, 10 years ago next year. So 2024. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, the brand's been going for 10 years. Um, but prior to that, um, I, I was just very interested in fragrance. It wasn't, I, I think it was well, I know what it was. I, I read a terrible, terrible PR spiel for some fragrance where there were all these materials listed that I'd never heard of. And I remember thinking, is that even a thing? Um, the niche perfume world at this point was really small, really, really, really tiny. Um, so that this was about 15, 16 years ago. It was really, really tiny. Um, there weren't many people out there doing it. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't look at it and think, oh, there's there's a nice little opening. It just got me interested in fragrance. Um, and I think there were blogs appearing, some really, really fantastic writers writing about fragrance. And all of a sudden, they were answering the questions that I'd been pondering. You know, so how, how do you take rose and how do you get it into that fragrance? And so for me, it was just a path of learning. It was something I was really interested in with no mind to create a brand, um, no mind at this point to even create a fragrance. Um, so I read as much as I could on the subject. Then I did, I decided to do a five-day natural perfume course with the late Alec Lawless. Um, and that was really, really interesting. So all of a sudden, I'm smelling these materials. So rose absolute that doesn't smell like the rose on a bush. So then I, I, I went deeper and deeper and deeper into just the, the entire subject, um, 
then decided I was going to make a fragrance for myself. Just thought it might be a nice thing to do. And that fragrance was Anubis. It was at that point, well, sometime thereafter, when the fragrance was finished, I had a few people who said that I smelled really nice and what was I wearing, the usual thing. And I did think, oh, maybe I could make another fragrance. Maybe I could do another mm. one. Um, and so it was all very accidental. It wasn't planned. It grew on its own. Um, I think very much for the brand, it was right place, right time as mm. well. Um, the, the niche world or indie world um, back then, I don't think was as heavily saturated as it is now. So that really allowed us to sort of find an opening into an industry that's notoriously difficult to break. So it seems like Anubis was originally created more as a hobby versus a business. And I'm curious, as you were creating Anubis and starting to think about it becoming a business, like, was it IFRA compliant from the beginning? And was that a hard thing for you to navigate? No, it wasn't from the beginning. So in the beginning, it had far too much Jasmine Absolute in it. Um, mm. I think that it was the Jasmine Absolute that that pushed it way over. Um, so yeah, I had to, again, you know, learning on the job, so to speak, um, found a really good company who helped me with the compliance. Um, so we outsource all of that. So I write the formula, I you know, I work out the percentages of what's in the fragrance. They take that data, they analyze it, they come back with the list of allergens, with the big book that says, there you go, this is fine, mm -hmm. you can sell this. Um, so, yeah, it was the Jasmine Absolute in Anubis that I had to really reduce. So it was much, um, much heavier on the Jasmine initially. Um, but by that point, I'd got my head around it. I was understanding things like IFRA compliance. So by the time I was working on the second and third fragrance, I already knew that I had to do it with IFRA in mind. So everything I was doing from that point um, was quite considered. Um, even if I had to scale it back later, um, it was they were all created with IFRA in mind. Okay, interesting. Yeah, because when I what I've read about Anubis um, as your first creation too is that it was very inspired, and there was a lot of nods to ancient Egypt and and your fascination with some of the embalming ingredients of ancient oh. Egypt. And as something that started as a hobby, did you always have a sort of strict brief of what Anubis would be and what it would smell like? Well, Anubis was a fragrance that didn't have a name when it was it was first created. I created it and I thought, oh, this smells really good. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously as I'm making it, it's weird, isn't it, what the subconscious can do? Um, because a lot of the materials that I was using were used in the mummification process, um, were found in ancient Egypt. But it was only afterwards that I thought, oh, this is, this is quite Egyptian, even down to the jasmine that I mm. used in there. It's an Egyptian jasmine that I use for Anubis. And so it was after the event that I think um, there was a book I had on mummification that I pulled out and was reading. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is this is really weird. And I thought, that's what I need to call this fragrance, because to me, it, it captured, I don't know, the essence of the god of mummification. Um, but that fragrance wasn't named until later. Did It didn't have a name to start with it, it, it was just a fragrance 
that I made for myself to wear. Um, so there was a lot of serendipity that happened with Anubis. I, I think it was always meant to be called Anubis. That's beautiful. I didn't realize that it was more of like a hindsight thing that you incidentally created a fragrance inspired by something that was also a passion of yours with other fragrances in your line because the briefs are so beautiful and the inspiration and the prose that I I know your daughter has written some of them on the website as well that are surrounding these fragrances are so detailed and particular. As someone who creates the brief and then executes the brief, do you feel like you start creating first and then sort of figure it out after like you did with Anubis or at this point, is it more like pointed and directed? It can be in many different ways. So often um, I'm trying to give you an example and I won't use um, Jazz's wedding fragrance because obviously that that's really, really different, I think. So if we if we take Hera out of the equation, the inspiration can come obviously from anywhere. And once I feel that inspiration so dryad i think is the best example i can give so where i live i live in the woods Mm -hmm. um really fortunate to have three really beautiful oak trees in the garden and i love these trees and so i would often sit underneath one and think about the spirits of the tree in inhabiting it and Mm. you know the dryads and i thought i really want to create a fragrance um called Dryad, you know, and to conjure the image, you know, the olfactory image of a tree changing through the seasons, Mm. the spirit and the essence of the tree. So Dryad, the name came first, and then the creative part happened afterwards. So I would actually sit underneath this particular tree, which I can actually see from my office here, it's only over there, and I would sit there writing fragrance notes that I felt would work. Um, I would go outside in the summer and sit underneath the tree with some materials and really, really try and capture what I thought was the essence of the changing seasons around this beautiful tree. So for Dryad, it was that way around. With Tobacco Rose, it was slightly different. Um, I really, really wanted to work with um, the rose materials. They were fairly new to me at the time. They're really, really expensive. Um, and I kept on mucking up every rose fragrance I made and I was getting quite annoyed about it. And I kept thinking Anubis was a real fluke. So I'd managed to create a fragrance, bearing in mind there's no brand at this point. This is just me as a hobbyist. And I kept thinking this Anubis was a fluke. It was the fluky fragrance that I managed to make that smells really good. I can't do anything with this rose idea that I have. It's all falling apart. And it was so challenging because I just wanted to create a rose fragrance. So with Tobacco Rose, it was a really tricky one to get right. And the name came afterwards. Um, And for anyone who doesn't know, there's no tobacco in Tobacco Rose. What I was trying to capture with that fragrance was the smell not just of the rose, but also the earth and the soil from which the rose grows. Um, And I did try it with tobacco in the beginning, and it really, really compressed all the rose notes, um, made it quite muddy, um, and it just felt that no reduction of this material was helping Mm. this formula at all. And so I tried Hay Absolute, which has really, really delicate um, tobacco facets and used that instead and 
tempered it a little. And so I felt the tobacco rose was a good way of explaining the fragrance as as not a prettified rose, um, that this was something with a little bit more earth and a little bit more grit. Um, and so the, na the name came afterwards. But I think it, it very much varies. So inspiration can come from if I have a rep come over here and there's a new material, you know, at the moment I've got a really lovely Egyptian neroli on my desk. You know, I might smell that and I might instantly think of something else completely not associated with fragrance and think, how can I create a fragrance around that idea? So the ideas come in and the creative process is, is never the same. Yeah, I mean, going back to Dryad, I love how you're talking about the life of a tree through different seasons and the dryads coming out of the tree because when I first smelled it, the way that it felt was almost enveloping in the way. Have you ever seen uh, Jumanji? Yes. Yeah. It reminds me of like all the vines <laughs> coming out when they roll. Like there's something so just like life, like it's just so alive and it's so enveloping and engulfing in such a ivy tree nature way that it's just it's it's fun and it's beautiful and it's a little mischievous like it might swallow you up if you're not careful mm. and I just I I think it's absolutely beautiful. <laughs> and you're you're talking about with tobacco rose about like realizing that it shouldn't be tobacco that it should be hay and new materials that reps will bring you and I'm curious how did you go about knowing materials, learning materials, discovering materials? It was it was quite hard. So obviously, as I said earlier, that I did the five day naturals course, um, natural perfumery course with the late Alec mm -hmm. Lawless. That helped me a lot because other than I think you know, lavender oil and tea tree oil, I'd never been near some of these rarefied oils, you know, tuberose. And all of a sudden we have rose Morocco, but we have a Bulgarian rose, you know, roses from almost every corner of the globe. And so the study really started then. And Alec was very generous, so generous with his knowledge um, and the suppliers that he used um, so that, you know, we could, you know, all of the students at the time could contact them direct. Um, on this course was a woman called Karen Gilbert, who subsequently became a really good friend of mine. So we've been friends since we attended that course. And she used to work for IFF. She worked, I believe, for Neil's Yard in their sort of product development. And she was the one that said, because I kept saying to her, I'm, I'm making this fragrance. This was Anubis. And it just smells rubbish. It doesn't smell like perfume. And she said, well, you need to use some aroma chemicals. Mm. That's what's going to mm. change it. And I'm thinking, I don't, I don't even know what she's talking about. This, this is like another language to me. So with a lot of research, and Google was my best friend, I found a fantastic supplier in the UK. And the two guys that I dealt with, they've, they've subsequently moved on. They were headhunted by bigger companies within the perfume industry. And oh my goodness, they helped me so much. Um, so with MOQs, so minimum order quantities, they reduced those way down for me so that I could afford to purchase these materials. They also sent me sample upon sample upon sample of every material you can imagine 
So my education restarted. So I'd spent a long time with the naturals, smelling all of those, familiarizing myself with them, seeing what they did in a formula, realizing, you know, what one material does to another. Then came the aroma chemicals. So, so then all of a sudden it was it was magic. This this is where I thought, yes, this is now how you make fragrance. And so there was a period of a long period of, of study where I would just sit smelling, smelling, smelling strips, making notes, going back to it, seeing how these materials interacted with each other. They were fun times. So you spent time sort of studying before you started creating. Was there a moment where you felt like, I feel like I have a grasp on this and how these work together that you felt ready to start creating? Yeah, I mean, Anubis was always a work in progress because it started life as a natural perfume that that I didn't really enjoy. I, I knew the materials I was using were really fantastic, but for some reason what I was creating was was no good. Um, and so I think with the when the aroma chemicals sort of came into the equation, that really, really changed the landscape for me in terms of being able to properly create a fragrance. Um, and yeah, the study with those was, and it, it's still ongoing. I mean, there's, they're constantly, you know, the compounding houses are constantly bringing out new aroma chemicals. I can, I, I can barely keep up with it. Um, you know, we, I get sent samples from reps constantly with a new aroma chemical, but, but that really, really changed things in terms of how I make perfume. So let's talk about your perfumers, Oregon. Who are some of the aroma chemicals mm-hmm. or naturals? Who are some of the unsung heroes or maybe fan favorites? Are there any that really make its way into all the Papillon scents? Okay, but definitely the musks. I use some really, really lovely musks. There's um, really elegant musk that I love um, that you will find in Hera. Um, you'll find it in Tobacco Rose, and it's called Musk R1. And it's just a beautiful, elegant, slightly creamy musk. It's just beautiful. It's lovely. I chuck it in everything if I could. It's so good. So I love my musks. Um, I love the resinous materials as well. So things like benzoin and um, tolu. I, I love those. So they're firm favourites, which probably, if you're familiar with the Papillon fragrances, would be quite obvious because there are a lot of resins that I use in each of the fragrances. And then I suppose for controversial <laughs> use, then we have the animalics, mm-hmm. don't we? Which are is certainly in your fragrances. They are. And I, I just want to say that they are. I, I don't use any animalics that cause any suffering, cruelty to animals. None of that goes on. So the castorium that I use is synthetic, as is the civet. And the hyracium that I use is the real thing, but the animals aren't harmed for that it's poop right it's poop they, yeah it's foss- fossilized poop there we go <laughs> there's this i know it's lovely isn't it I, I mean i think it's so funny to picture the people who discovered these materials like i picture like some like buddy comedy movie where like two people are walking in the forest and they're like what if we put this on our skin like who dis- my whole thing is like who discovered heracium 
You know, like know. who who, who discovered uh, amber green? Not that I don't understand these ingredients in perfume, but someone had to be the first person to be uh, like, but what if I put it on my body? I often think <laughs> that. And I think, well, did someone accidentally roll in it? And then they right. and then they couldn't wash it off their skin. And they and you know, a couple of days later they're still smelling it, thinking, actually, I quite like this smell. Mm. I suppose, you yeah. know, if we go back a few hundred years, everyone was quite smelly. So maybe, you know, ambergris and the like were not that offensive considering True. how everybody else was smelling. Right. You have to add the, the cultural context yeah. of like a little ambergris on top of all the BO yeah. and unwashed bodies yeah. and hygienic issues. It's like a little maybe, like a little floral. Maybe it was uber sexy. <laughs> yeah. Very, well, speaking of sexy and mm. animalic, I want to talk about Salome. <laughs> And I also want to talk about, it's so funny because even just as I was preparing for this interview, I was just reading different reviews on the internet. <laughs> and some of these reviews, I even wrote a few down because they're just, they're so funny to me. And I'm curious, Salome or other, are there any like salient reviews or commentary that you can remember for any of your fragrance or either it just made you laugh or you felt completely understood or just shocked you or anything like that well I do, I do have one I have one here there's, there's a couple that have really made me laugh um and honestly I do not I do not get offended by it at all I <laughs> I love this one this was one that I um found I did a bit of a deep dive on Fragrantica today so this was um um, El Visium, who says, so I'm just going to be real direct and tell you it smells like urine. Hell, it even <laughs> looks like urine. I think people are being too cautious in saying that it isn't bad to their nose. So let me be that person. It is bad. It is noxious on both paper and skin for me. I might actually throw it out, which I've never done with a decant. I, I'm so sorry wow. for this person. I but it's yeah. it's great, isn't it? Because I knew that Salome was was polarizing. Mm -hmm. I knew this. Right. I, I remember. Right. I, I've said it before. You know, my my family honestly thought I'd taken leave of my senses. Um, I had my eldest daughter saying, "Mummy, you can create really lovely perfumes. Why would you create a perfume that smells like we?" Um, but <laughs> I loved it. There, to me, I think sometimes, and I think we do it in life and we can do it with food or even sometimes with the people around us, that, that things that aren't necessarily outwardly attractive or appealing have a, have a physical pull, that, that, that there is right. that, that sort of conflicting feeling I think we have as human beings where something that repels us also draws us in. Um, Absolutely. And I knew that Salome had all that in spades. And I knew that it was absolutely going to divide people. And and I still sort of have a private chuckle about it now, especially when I, even though I feel really sorry for this person who had to throw away their decant. <laughs> right. Well, as a rebuttal to that review, I have written down a few that I found funny and I'll read this one, which says, if your urine smells like Salome, then please pee all over me. <laughs> so, That's the and then the next one, which is insufferable people seem to hate this perfume. 
just <laughs> putting it out there. Um, it's really, it's, I mean, you know, fragrance reviews are a whole other, are a whole other thing. But now that we have you on the record, what exactly was your intention with this fragrance that has been so widely received by people who have smelled it? What did you want Salome to smell like? Yeah, I wanted it to smell like postcoital sex. Um, and there were a lot of fragrances um, that had been reviewed as being sexy and beastly and scary. And I, I, I was like, well, give me that. I need to smell like this and wear it like an armor around me. And none of them did. And I, I kept spraying these fragrances thinking, well, is my nose off? Because I'm not really getting anything funky from this, but I think probably as a long time wearer of vintage fragrances, those mm -hmm. older fragrances did the animalics and then some. And so right. the tastes change and fragrances get reformulated, um, you know, often to accommodate, you know, changes in consumers' tastes. And so, and I remember reading something about one particular fragrance that was supposed to be animalic and I bought a bottle blind did the whole blind buying and just was deeply disappointed and I thought it doesn't smell like sex it it doesn't smell raunchy I'm not why am I not getting this so it was a moment where I thought right okay I'm gonna I'm gonna do one I'm gonna do I've always called Salome a balls to the wall floral this this is what she's emphasis going to emphasis on the balls emphasis on, on the balls <laughs> with maybe a bit of sweat <laughs> and so um so yeah so that was my foray into creating Salome and I think in it, mm. it it was there was a lot of talk at the time about Ifra and Ifra ruining fragrances and there was lots of conversation like that and people almost yearning for the the halcyon days of you know when, you know, Ifra weren't around and there were all these fragrances that could use heaps of everything and, you know, oodles and doodles of oak moss. So obviously I couldn't do that, but I thought, okay, well, let's, let's go vintage with this. Let's make this a really, really sexy fragrance. It was originally inspired by um, a photograph, original 1920s photograph I have hanging in my hallway of a burlesque dancer, you know, in quite a revealing state. Really, really beautiful woman, really, really sexy photograph. I would look at her and think, what would she wear? What would she be wearing? Mm. And um, so she was always there, sort of front and present while I was creating that fragrance. And I think I just wanted to take Salome just to the point of everyone's safe word. So it still had to be <laughs> wearable. I love that. <laughs> so Salome is everyone's safer. That is, that's all you need. <laughs> so I, I did really want, I wanted it to be wearable. I didn't want it to be like a sort of art installation piece that, that people couldn't wear. But I wanted it to challenge people. I mean, crikey, I, I made the fragrance and even I have to be in the mood to wear it. You have to mm -hmm. really, really own that fragrance and you have to meet it. Um, it's a fragrance that I wear, you know, little black dress, killer heels, red lipstick, and you just got to go mm -hmm. out there and right. strut your stuff. But I knew it would divide and I'm happy it did because that's where the best conversation happens is when people debate and they discuss and 
I'm very proud of that fragrance. It's beautiful. I mean, it's interesting too, you're talking about this muse that sort of guided you of that of that portrait that you would look at as you were developing this fragrance. And I know you mentioned that you get inspiration from lots of different places and that sometimes it comes from sitting under a tree, sometimes it's note inspired, sometimes it's an, an image. Is there sort of, I guess, like a North Star while you're creating that helps you just realize if you're, I guess what I'm trying to ask is like, because you don't have someone to report to, to say like, no, you're not matching the brief. Like what keeps you from getting derailed from whatever concept you're trying to execute? Or does that not matter to you? No, and I think it's a really good question, Emma, because I have to be really, really strict with myself. And let's say I'm inspired by something in particular. And I think, and this has happened numerous times, uh, and I'm going to create this amazing fragrance around this concept. There have been dozens of times where it has fallen apart because I have to stay to my own brief. I have a very clear idea in my head of where I want the fragrance to go. I don't like to deviate from that because I think the moment you deviate from that, your original creative um, thought process has to change. So actually, what you've got is a mishmash of ideas that went from A to B to X to Y. With, right. you know, none of it is cohesive. So, I mean, my studio is littered. I have a, an enormous um, drawer, you know, like filing cabinet drawers, huge, deep, deep, deep drawers, which are littered with mods. I call them the bodies of perfumes that never made it. And so because I have to keep myself very much driven on my own brief, there have been, like I say, many times when the fragrance just hasn't made the cut, but I may go back to it later and all of a sudden something connects. Um, so mm. it's very, it's for me, it's very immersive. And I think your point about you no know, focus group, um, I don't have anybody, you know, telling me where the fragrance needs to go is a blessing and a curse. Um, right. It's a blessing for me because I get to be creatively free. I have no budget. I can use whatever materials I want. I can take my time, but it can be a curse because I'm second guessing myself sometimes. And there's been times where I've had to step back from a fragrance for months. Dryad was a fragrance that I did that with, where I thought that I'd finished the fragrance only to look at it and think, I, I'm not sure it's there. I don't, I don't think I like it. It's not what I wanted it to be. I could smell it in my head, but what I had in front of me was, was not my image for the fragrance. So that one was put away. I put that away for about six months and kept thinking about it. It was honestly, it was driving me insane. And then one day I just had that light bulb moment where I thought, oh my goodness, I know what to do. I know what to do. And when I, when I get like that, mm -hmm. it's a bit manic. And I finished it from the old mod to the completed version in about two days. So, where, wow. but it had spent, I'd spent probably nine months with the first mod, everything going wrong, mod after mod, but it was that final one. And that happens a lot. So I think sometimes the distance is required to put some distance between myself and what I'm creating and then come back to it, return to it. You can you can see it with fresh eyes and a fresh nose. Mm. And as someone who specifically wears Dryad, I've only smelled the final product of what was finished, but can I ask like just in those moments, like 
when you did resmell it several months down the line, for you, what was that thing that you're like, this is what it's been missing, or this is where I need to change the formula? What did it not have before? Okay, so um, I use um, an apricot note in um, Dryad, and it didn't have that in the previous mod, so the final mod, mm. where I thought I was getting towards my my image for this fragrance. And it needed something, it, it, and, I, and I didn't realise it at the time. And, you know, I think there was originally some bergamot in there. I think there may have been a little tiny bit of mandarin oil. You know, I can't remember what mm. was in there. And all of a sudden, I, th- I can't even remember what I was doing, but it just came into my head, like apricot, yeah. you need, which is so bizarre because I don't, I don't know where it came from. And that was the material that basically turned it on its head. Obviously, I adjusted a few other things within the formula, you know, to help pull it all together and make it sit together cohesively. But yeah, sometimes I do just have these moments where I dream about formulas as well. Mm -hmm. I would dream about formulas and wake up and think, now I have the answer. It's like a eureka moment. Is there any element, like, do you believe in any sort of like higher power assisting you? I mean, I know like, there's spell 125. I know that there's clearly some new age stuff, inspiration in your fragrances. Like in those moments, do you feel like there's like something from like your higher consciousness? What does that feel yeah, like? Yeah, I, I do. I do. And I think um, I've always felt that in the same way I think Anubis has been the lucky or is the lucky perfume for Papillon. I mean, sometimes the, the road I've taken with the brand and the business and you know as a perfumer has been unorthodox and there have been some beautiful coincidences that have happened along the way that you could say are they coincidence were they driven partly by myself I I don't know but some of it is just feels too lucky so yeah I've always believed that I always believe but I think I think we make our own our own destinies and I think sometimes yeah. if you if you remain positive and you work hard then I think good stuff can come your way I agree I feel like there are some ideas that are floating in the universe and they end up in the right vessel mm. who will be the right person to execute them but you have to be tapped in to pick up the the message that's being sent to you as the person who's supposed to execute it. Absolutely, yeah, and I love that. And um, uh, yeah, and beca- because sometimes I was dreaming about formulas and then would wake up and think, I, I know the final piece of the puzzle. I would think, well, that's obviously buried somewhere very, very deep within yeah. within this knowledge that my, my brain can be quite flitty. So I have to really, really concentrate on focusing myself and so, I'm obviously taking in information and then it's flitting out and flitting right. back in again. So quite clearly when I'm asleep, my brain is starting to organize things <laughs> and think, well, we'll tell her now. Right. When you're when you're not even conscious of it, yeah. it which is, you know, it's yeah. it's really okay. I do want to talk about inspiration for one more fragrance. Um, just because as you saw, I don't know if we'll leave it in or not, but my feline friend did make an appearance in our in our conversation and I know you have Bengal Rouge which is inspired by your cat to you like what were you trying to capture and is it like more of the emotional smell of your cat the literal smell a combination what was your goal a little of both so um obviously I wanted the fragrance to be very textural I wanted it to feel very warm and very soft 
and very cuddly. So I, I thought, well, there's your cat for a start. Well, certainly my cat anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but Mimi and my other cat, they do have a very distinct smell and they have that distinct smell because they're very, very clean animals. Um, but they lay where we lay. And so Mimi would inevitably be on me, either around my neck, on my side of the bed. So I would pick her up and sniff her and think, oh, you smell gorgeous. And what she was smelling of were remnants of whatever fragrance I was wearing um, with her own smell. So so it was an attempt to conjure that feeling. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just wanted a fragrance that was really elegant, but really soft and really embracing all at the same time and and it just fitted so perfectly with my beautiful cat um I think obviously if I was going to go the literal route obviously you know the cats have kind of litter trays and you know we don't want to go there so I didn't want to go down that route I wanted it more as a as a feeling of a cat so I mean I it is a little controversial because you do have many pets and I feel like you consciously picked a favorite yeah. How how does your other cat feel? Has oh. there been any controversy in the well, home? Well, yes, there has actually. And that's from my youngest daughter who keeps saying, when are you going to do a perfume for Mama New? You haven't made one for Mama New. And I said, I know. Okay, so <laughs> someone else agrees with me. <laughs> it's really hard. I think Mimi, um, Mimi only because I've had Mimi a little bit longer than I've had Mama New. Mm-hmm. Mimi is very much sort of my cat cats kind of choose mm-hmm. their people um right mama knew is very much my little girl's cat they adore each other and so yeah so it had to be mimi but yeah it hasn't hasn't been without its controversies in the house and um yeah don't worry we, we've had okay. this conversation <laughs> okay well i do want to talk a little bit about your house and all of the animals because from what i've read and tell me if my recon is correct okay but It seems as though you have a horse, an owl, a crow, two cats, and a dog. Am I? Is there something I'm getting wrong in that? Well, you're you're close. So I have two horses. um, Two horses. Two horses. Um, I have my owl, my barn owl. I used to have a jackdaw, but he chose the wildlife over living with me in the. This end. is a dumb question, but what is a jackdaw? I don't even little, think I know. A little bit like a, like a smaller crow. So again, part of the, okay. the COVID family. Um, okay. But yeah, he he spent a, quite a few months coming back to the bird table and stealing cashew nuts um, and then decided that he hated all of us and that he was leaving. Um, As crows are wont to do. I know. That's what he decided to do. And we have um, two dogs two cats. Um, My youngest daughter has a bearded dragon. Um, I have a couple of snakes. Um, We have chickens. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's actually fairly light on the animals. So at one point um, we were having a sort of fairly regular intake of very sadly wild owls who had been injured out in the wild. So I would do some rehabilitation and release them back. Um, but luckily that's been nice and quiet for a couple of years now. Cause obviously when they are, you know, when they do arrive, I don't really like it because it means they've had a pretty hard time. Um, whereas ghost, the owl that I have, he was captive bred. So he was captive bred and I raised him from this very ugly looking sort of pink, strange ball that he was. Um, 
And yeah, so he'll be with me forever. That's beautiful. So would any of your other animals ever inspire a fragrance? Absolutely. So, I mean, sadly, I lost um, my very beloved horse. I'd had him over 20 years. I lost him two two years ago. And when he was still alive, I started making a fragrance that um, was the smell of his body and his leather saddle. I have revisited that that mod. Um, I couldn't do it for a little while. So when he died, it was very much like, I don't, but now, now I'm kind of, you know, recovered from my grief. I'm so pleased that I captured that smell while he was still alive. Um, So that might be something that does make its way into the collection in the future. I have a couple like that, that, that sit there that I think, "Mm," you know, I wear things as well for a long time. So if I think I finished a fragrance, the biggest test is I will wear it continuously um, mm-hmm. and, and wear it in every, you know, we're in the UK, so, you know, the weather changes, you know, at a whim. Um, so I wear it when it's rainy, I wear it when it's sunny, um, just to see how I can live with it. And then I get my poor family to do the same, that I spray it all over them and then they have to go away and and wear it. But, yeah, I think the um, the one that I did for my horse is a contender. That's beautiful. If you're comfortable sharing, are there any smells that you just think absolutely need to be bottled in a perfume that you're still chasing or perhaps working on? Mm, I don't know. Um, the thing is, there's so many, there are so many smells that I, I love. Um, and actually, I might love one thing more one day than I do the other. I'm really fickle when it comes to that. Same, the same with wearing fragrance. I never, it's rare that I will wear the same fragrance two days in a row unless I'm trialing one of my own fragrances. I mean, the bluebell wood here, this, this again was something that I started working on a couple of years ago. We have beautiful wild bluebells over here and they smell mm. incredible. Um, and they're protected, so you can't pick them. So during bluebell season, you'll find me over there, sort of on my hands and knees, looking a bit like some <laughs> goblin hunched over the bluebells with with my with my notebook. Um, so I think a, a really, really true nature identical interpretation of the bluebell would be something really lovely. I'd love to do something like that. That's beautiful. When you say you're like hunched over with your notebook, which great visual, thank you so much. But when you say that, like, are you in your mind trying to like think of like the different aroma chemicals and materials in your organ that you're like, oh, okay, this, this quantity of this musk with this would smell like that? Is that kind of what's coming up for you? Yeah, very, very much so. So I'll get the the first initial impression. So for example, bluebell smells very much like a watery hyacinth. Um, so, so, you know, I will start there and then I'm thinking, are we going to pull in any of the greenery? Are we going to bring any mossy bits? Are we, and and so as my brain is, is thinking it through, I'm also thinking of what I have in the studio, which materials I would use, where I would use them. And I mean, that process can take, it, it never happens straight off for me. I've never come back with my notebook and gone, yeah, yeah, I did it. (laughs) It does not work like that. I normally come back and start shouting and swearing and thinking that didn't work. Um, So I'm quite tough on myself as well. Um, so yeah, that that process can take a while. Sometimes the material you think that's going to work in a fragrance absolutely Mm. 
does not. Um, especially if you know if you're really holding on to that brief and it has to smell like, like say for example, the bluebell. Um, but yeah, I'd like to create a bluebell scent. That's exciting. Something for everyone listening to look forward to. Okay, mm-hmm. well, I guess we have one final question before we get to the final segment of the show. And mm-hmm. that might have been the answer. But what is something that is um, exciting or inspiring you right now? Well, we're, we're very much heading into autumn. Here, well, we are in autumn in the UK. It doesn't feel like it. We're having some bizarre weather. Um, but at the moment, I'm really into vanilla. Um, I was mm. given um, a sample from Fantastic Rep who deal with um, some really, really great natural suppliers. And this vanilla is to die for. So at the moment, I'm feeling really inspired by that and amber-style fragrances. I love an amber-style fragrance. So my head at the moment, my head at the moment is sort Ooh. of, yeah, weaving down that path. I would love to smell a, a vanilla from Papillon. That's very exciting. Okay, well, with that said, we have one final segment of the show. It is a rapid fire scent association game and it is called What's That Smell? And I will throw out people, places, emotions, whatever, and you tell me the first smell that comes to mind. Okay. Are you ready to play What's That Smell? Sounds good. Let's play. Mmm, what's that smell? Okay, well, we did start this a little bit, but I thought it would be fun to go through each of your pets and say the first smell that comes to mind for each of them. And it can be, you know, abstract or literal. Okay, let's do um, Cosmo. My French bulldog, uh, cheese. He smell his feet smell of cheese. <laughs> okay, love it. <laughs> <laughs> and then ghost smells of rotting flesh. His breath is disgraceful. Uh, so okay. we'll have hit the we'll ghost. I'm starting to understand why uh, Mimi was the muse. <laughs> yeah, you, you can see why. <laughs> we don't need Cosmo. We don't need ghost ever immortalized <laughs> in a fragrance. <laughs> um, let me think. Let me think. Um, so we're going to do the animals. So my horse, Mr. K, he smells of of toasted hay and sunshine. He just smells divine. He's gorgeous. Beautiful. And um, I'm just trying to think Mama Noo, because obviously Mama Noo never made the cut with the fragrance at the moment. But Mama Noo smells of musk. And she smells of fish. <laughs> Mask and fish. Okay. <laughs> She's grim. <laughs> Bless her. <laughs> I'm actually thinking how grim they <laughs> they all smell. <laughs> I okay. I understand why Mimi was the chosen yeah. one. It's all checking out. Okay. What is the smell of London? Oh my goodness! At the moment, I would say um, the last time I went to London, I could smell loads well pollution first thing so huge amounts of pollution and a lot of oud a lot of people wearing oud in london i was really amazed it was like the streets it was rather pleasant it was better than the pollution i have to say oud over pollution any day i'm with you there okay what is the smell of your childhood home uh cigarettes and pledge polish a lovely combo. Okay, what is what is the smell of your home now? Um, I would say it smells of incense because I'm constantly burning incense and um, probably geranium oil because I, I burn a lot of that as well. I love the rosy smell of that. I find it very uplifting. 
What a nice combo of something a little dark and mm. something a little bright. Yeah. That's so lovely. What is the smell of love? Oh, it's such a cliche because I want to say vanilla. I want to say vanilla because I think vanilla has that obviously beautiful edible aspects to it. And I think when you really love someone or you, you know, whether it's one of your animals or your children or your partner, you almost love them so much you want to eat them. So I think, I think I'd go with vanilla. I see. I love these justifications. You don't even have to. And it's so poetic. I mean, I agree. Okay. What is the smell of the color pink? I would say Turkish delight. Turkish delight. Okay. What is the smell of papillon? Oh, the smell of papillon. I would say there, I would say human skin in a way because I like to add a sort of human note to each of the fragrances um so it almost feels like it has been touched by human skin beautiful yeah and what to you is the smell what connotes human skin to you well I think it punches up lots of musks um and I think even musks on their own a combination of musks can very much have that human quality that that lovely quality of skin. Beautiful. Okay, the final question. What is the smell of Liz Moore's? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, that changes frequently um, in terms of what I'm wearing. But the smell of me, goodness, that's a really tricky one. See, I can do it with everything else. I can't do it with myself. That's really interesting, isn't it? I, want, I wonder what a psychiatrist would make of this. <laughs> You're not the first person who struggled with this question. It's yeah. very difficult. What do I smell like? I think I smell like the outdoors. I smell of the woods because I spend much of my time there. So I feel it's within me. I feel I breathe that from myself. Beautiful. A perfect answer <laughs> for someone who struggled just seconds ago. You killed it. Liz, this has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Truly so much fun. I'm such a fan of your work and I know so many listeners of this podcast are as well. Um, so thank you for making the time. Oh, well, thank you, Emma. Honestly, it's been a real privilege. It's been lovely, lovely talking to you. Thank you. Likewise. For, for everybody listening who is now curious to get their noses on your fragrances, where can they do so and where can they follow you? Okay, so um, uh, we are on Instagram, um, Papillon. Uh, artisan perfumes on Instagram, uh, Facebook. Although I don't update the Facebook very much, that's really bad, isn't it? Um, and mm. fragrances are available worldwide. Um, in the US, they're available from Lucky Scent, Indigo Perfumery, um, Fumery Parfumery, and Ministry of Scent. And our worldwide stockists in Europe that all on the website so you can find them on the papillon website so we're in spain and germany oh my goodness see i forget isn't this bad i forget, I forget where the perfumes are lucky enough they're to all over them. the answer well, is they're everywhere lucky right. enough to yeah. find them mostly everywhere beautiful liz thank you so much oh thank you emma it's been a joy talking to you this podcast was edited by joe leonardo music is by max vernon and illustrations are by israel rodriguez Thank you.